Would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And uh, as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are watching online. We are so glad that you're joining us uh, here today and glad that you're a part of our study uh, that we're having. And before we get into our study, uh, something that has uh, no relationship to the study this morning at all. It's just a, one of my favorite recent pictures. Here's a picture of my favorite football player, Aaron Rodgers. And there he is, uh, the quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. He's praying during the national anthem. All the Packers are very godly. They're very, very devout. They all pray like that during it. But in the forefront is uh, Grant is the uh, son of Pastor Randy and Cheryl. And their son is now the assistant strength and conditioning coach uh, for the Packers. Uh, he, in his duties, has to help Aaron Rodgers stretch before the game. And I told him the next time he does that, don't wash your hands until you come back. And then shake my hand, and then I won't wash my hand for the rest of my life. Uh, that will be really disgusting. Nobody's going to shake my hands anymore now. But anyway... I That has nothing to do with the message. I just thought I would show you uh, that picture there. Uh, We continue our study, Mythbusters. It's our fall series, Mythbusters, debunking the myths of contemporary culture. And here's one of our theme passages. It's 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 17, on how to deal with it when there are lies told about us from the very beginning. Uh, This has happened to Christians. In the Greco-Roman world, they used to have a a rumor that they were cannibals because they uh, had the blood of Christ and the body of Christ in communion. And so there have been nasty rumors about followers of Christ for the very beginning for the last 2,000 years. And so Peter wrote down how to handle that. He says, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Nobody ever argued somebody into the kingdom. Nobody ever debated anybody into the kingdom. We share what we believe to be true, but we do it with blessing. We do it with love. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, even if you are slandered, even if there are myths told about you, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not fear their their slander. Do not fear their myths. Do not be frightened. And here's the key verse, verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But... Do this with gentleness and respect. Have a defense of the faith, but do it with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Today we're going to look at some contemporary myths about the history of Christianity. And the reason I believe this is so important Because the history of the Christian faith, the history of Christianity, is a powerful apologetic for the Christian faith. History accurately told. History told as it is, not as people are revising it to be, is a powerful apologetic 
for Christianity. Now, apologetic doesn't mean that we apologize, you know, so sorry about the Crusades, our bad, you know, or something like that. That's not what apologetic means. It's from the Greek word apologia, uh, apologia, so it comes from two Greek halves, apo meaning defense, logos meaning word or speech or discourse. So it is a word in defense of the faith. That's what we mean by an apologetic uh, for the faith. And it's so important that we tell history accurately. And that is why the critics of Christianity, what we call the new atheists, with books like God's Not Good or The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins or Letters to a Christian Nation by Sam Harris or these other uh, new atheists that are attacking Christianity today, what they will try so often to do is to revise history. And that's what we're talking about here today. What they'll do is, I have a little a set of binoculars here. They're kind of small for me. These are uh, Lily Wilson. Pete Wilson is our media man, uh, media pastor. And I said, do you have any binoculars? Because I couldn't find our binoculars. He says, yes, my three-year-old daughter, Lily, has some. And so these are Lily's binoculars that she uses to look for bugs in the backyard. And what you do with binoculars, you know, you put them up and you use them the right way. And, and something that is small and far away seems big and up close. But do you remember when you were a kid, you used to flip them? Anybody flip them the other way? Okay, yeah, you like me. You flip them the other way. And then something big and close seems small and far away, just the opposite of when you use them the right way. And so what these uh, new atheists and attacking the Christian faith will do is with regard to the crimes of Christians, things, bad things done in the name of Jesus, sometimes hundreds, sometimes thousands of years ago, they'll put binoculars on them and they'll say, look at that. And that thing that's small and way back in the future will seem big and up close. And then the contributions of followers of Christ, which are massive, as we're going to see in a moment, they flip the binoculars. And those things that are big and present seem small and distant and far away. And so if we're going to deal with four contemporary myths. I'm going to try to speed through the first one because you guys know it's one of my favorite subjects. I've done whole series. I've done multiple whole series on this first myth. And so I will discipline myself to go through it quickly because we haven't spent as much time on myth number two, three, and four. Here's the first contemporary myth. The positive contributions of Christ followers throughout history have been small. Now, this is absolutely ludicrous in a correct retelling of history. Uh, the Christian faith is the largest movement in human history. It's the fastest growing, both in the past and in the present. It is the most pervasive. It is the most inclusive. It is in just about every ethnic group around the world, every language group. Everywhere you go in the world, you will find followers of Christ. It has also been the greatest force for good in all of world history. The major face for good, almost the only force for good in world history. Uh, for example, just one little thing, is that we take for granted the concept of charity. That is that good people try to help people in needs. We take that for granted. We see a person that, that needs a handout somewhere. There's something within us. We may or may not do that, but there's something that considers that to be a, a possibly good thing to do. We give to charities. We give to people that are poor. We give to people that are in need. We consider that natural. Do you know the concept of charity was not known in the world until Jesus came? You read the readings or the writings of the Greek philosophers in the Greco-Roman world, and they will tell you that to help another person in need is a stupid thing to do. It is a morally deficient thing to do. It is actually something that you should not do because it, it helps out people that just have nobody to blame for their trouble but themselves. The concept of charity, unknown until Jesus came. 
Now, there are so many examples of this, and like I said, I've done a whole series on this. Let me just give you, just to remind us, a tiny, tiny tip of the iceberg. Let's look at medicine, for example. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, how we see that how the Christians dealt with the plagues in the first few centuries is the same way we're dealing with plagues like Ebola and AIDS uh, today. Dionysius writes, heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. You talk about Christians who stayed during the plagues, did not flee the city, but instead stayed with those that were suffering and caught the disease themselves and died from it. Similar to the doctor that I shared a couple of weeks ago, ministering to those with Ebola in Western Africa. Christians staying there with the Ebola plague. We see that with the AIDS plague. I remember uh, years ago, Dan Fountain was one of the missionaries connected with our church. And his father was the pastor of the church that I pastored back in New York. And Dan Fountain was one of the first people to fight AIDS on the continent of Africa. In our own church, our executive pastor, Peter Torrey, started an organization called Reach for Life, one of the key ways to fight AIDS in countries around the world. Our own executive pastor was the founder and the leader of that organization. And so the same thing we see today. The Council of Nyssa, one of the early church councils, said, wherever there's going to be a major church or a cathedral, there has to be a hospice, a place where the sick and the poor can be cared for. Every place that a cathedral went in the early church, they also built the first hospitals. The whole concept of a hospital was all started by followers of Christ. You can read the others there with regard to education. Education was something that certainly was around, but it was only for the elite and the wealthy. And with Christ followers came the whole rise to the idea, the concept of education for everyone, not just for the wealthy, not just for the elite. You'll see the legal reforms that are written there by Sherwood Wirt. Many permanent legal reforms were set in motion by Emperors Constantine and Justinian that can be laid to the influence of Christianity. Licentious and cruel sports were checked. New legislation was ordered to protect the slave, the prisoner, the mutilated man, the outcast woman. Children were granted important legal rights. Infant exposure was abolished. Women were raised from a status of degradation to that of legal protection. Hospitals and orphanages were created to take care of foundlings. This is children that were being abandoned because the parents didn't want them. And the Christians would go out to the dumps and gather in the kids and adopt them into their own homes. Personal feuds and private wars were put under restraint. In the area of children, abortion disappeared in the early church. Infanticide and abandonment disappeared. The cry went out to bring the children to church. Foundling homes, orphanages, and nursing homes were started to house the children. These new practices based on this higher view of life helped to create a foundation in Western civilization for an ethic of, ethic of human life that persists to this day. The little one-chapter book of Philemon in the New Testament, in the Bible, little tiny one-chapter book was the seeds by which slavery was eliminated in the world, in which people that fight human trafficking here in our own church under the leadership of Pastor Tomiko and why God put us as a church right at the corner of Holt and Gary, which is one of the, the center points for the whole Inland Empire, if not for the whole nation of human trafficking. Why did God put us right here on this corner? It is not by accident. He placed us here because that's where Christ followers have always been, right in the heart of the action, right in the center uh, of the action uh, to fight for that which is good. 
And that little book of Philemon that Paul wrote to a slave owner, Philemon, to release his slave, Onesimus, who was a slave, that little, that little book was used by great people like uh, John Newton, who was a slave trader himself and came to Christ. And he was so overwhelmed that grace could forgive even him, the captain of a slave ship, that he wrote that great hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. And William Wilberforce, uh, these two Christians and others led the way in the British Empire to eliminate this horrid trade of, of, of slavery. And it spread to the United States. In Eastern and Midwestern United States, the evangelicals were often drawn into the struggle against slavery. Calvinists and Methodists alike were giving spiritual support to the abolition movement in the 1840s and 1850s. The town of Oberlin, Ohio, founded by Charles G. Finney, who was kind of the Billy Graham of the mid-1800s. He was the great evangelist of the middle part of the 1800s. As a college for the training of evangelists, became a main connecting point on the Underground Railroad. President Finney himself was not above hiding fugitive slaves in his attic. And then the treatment of the elderly, which I am concerned more about day by day. Throughout history, many tribes and peoples killed off their elderly, much as they have killed off their unwanted babies. Prior to Christ, the value of the elderly was determined by the particular custom of each tribe. With Christ, all human life has value, including that of the elderly. And this continues down to the present. Mother Teresa writes, Today, God has sent us into the world as he sent Jesus to show God's love to the world, and we must sacrifice to show that love just as Jesus made the greatest sacrifice of all. The New York Observer years ago said infidelity, or what we would say today, atheism, makes a great outcry about its philanthropy, but religion does the work. Uh, the Gallup Poll organization in their research found those who attended religious services weekly were clearly the most generous givers of both time and money compared with all other groups. People who attended church regularly were far more likely to give a higher percentage of their household income to charitable causes. And so there's the first contemporary myth that the contributions of followers of Christ have been minimal. And then the second myth is the crimes committed by Christ followers throughout history have been great. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not defending everything done in the name of Jesus. And there have been some terrible things done in the name of Jesus. But you would think from reading these writers that all we've been up to for the last 2,000 years is crusading, inquisiting, and try, putting on trial witches. That seems like the only thing Christians have been about if you read these books. And so let's put them in historical context. Let's not defend everything that was done in the name of Christ, and as we're going to see by the end of the message, that these things are doing, done contrary to what Jesus taught, not because of what Jesus taught. But let's just put them in historical context. The Crusades from 1095 to 1291 A.D., just a good reminder that before Islam came about in the mid-600s A.D., the Middle East was predominantly Christian. It's hard for us to imagine. But countries like Turkey, Syria, um, Lebanon, uh, the, that whole area, Egypt, all these countries, Iran, Iraq, these were all predominantly Christian countries at that time. Inspired by Islam's call to jihad, Muhammad's armies conquered Jerusalem and the entire Middle East then they pushed south into Africa, east into Asia, and then north into Europe. Let's put our map up there. They conquered parts of Italy and most of Spain, 
overran the Balkans, and were preparing a final invasion that would bring all of Europe under Islam. Edward Gibbon, who wrote the famous book, The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, said that if the West had not fought back, quote, the Koran would now be taught in the schools of Oxford. Now, actually, that's happening today, but that's a different subject. Okay. Uh, 200 years after Islamic armies conquered the Middle East and forced their way into Europe, after 200 years, the Christians, the Europeans, finally did strike back, and these uh, efforts are called the Crusades. Now, that term was never used back then. It was a later invention to describe what was going on back then. So basically what happened is they failed to take back the Middle East, but they did stop Islam from taking over Europe. That was the nature of what we call today the Crusades. Now, bad stuff happened, like it always does during periods of warfare. But it was absolutely not the way it's portrayed today of Christians just going on a crazy killing spree. Absolutely untrue historically. Let's look at the Inquisition. Happened over a 350-year period during the 12th, 13th, and 14th centuries A.D. Now, it's, it's amazing when you dig into the Inquisition. It is totally different than the way it's usually portrayed. Uh, but let me just mention a couple of examples of the way that it was different. The Inquisition, for example, was not done by the church. But instead, it was done by the Spanish monarchy of King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. And an interesting thing, the Inquisition did not target Jews. It's usually seen as kind of a, a holocaust against Jews by Christians. It was not targeting Jews, but instead it targeted Christians. Now, it did target Jews who had become Christians. They were called conversos that had converted to Christianity. But the main source of allegations was from Jews who were angry, fellow Jews that were angry at those who had converted to Christianity. Now, regardless of that, regardless of that, there, there were injustices that were done. But how many were killed? Okay, how many were killed? You would think, actually, some of the atheist writers say millions upon millions killed in the Inquisition. The best historical estimate is about 2,000. It's been as low as 1,500, but it's about 2,000 would probably be the best estimate over 350 years. Now think about that. Almost this last week we remembered 9-11. Almost 3,000 people were killed on a single day on 9-11. And yet in the Inquisition that we hear so much about, you would think that's the only thing Christians have done for the last 2,000 years. The, in the Inquisition, 1,500 or 2,000 people, a half of that or two-thirds of that over, not a day, but a 350-year period. How about the Salem witch trials? Probably the thing that Christians are most known for in the Hollywood media scene is the Salem witch trials. You think that's the only thing we've been up to for the last three or 400 years, uh, American Christianity, 1692. And by the way, have you noticed how all the examples they use are from like hundreds of years, if not thousands of years before? If you ever have a political candidate, and the worst thing they come up with on the guy is that he pulled a ball away from somebody in third grade, you know, and they go back to third grade, you'd say, I bet that candidate's pretty clean. If they've got to do their commercials about pulled a ball away from a fellow boy on the playground in third grade, you know, uh, that's the way so many of these are. Hundreds of years in the past, uh, sometimes thousands of years in the past. But the Salem Witch Trials, boy, Hollywood has made so many movies about it. There have been so many books about it. You'd think this is what represents American Christianity. How many people do you think were killed in the Salem witch trial? Maybe thousands, uh, maybe hundreds, 19 people. 
19, now that's terrible. And if there was any injustice done, one is too many, as we're going to see in just a moment. But you would think it was thousands upon thousands, and it was 19. That's the actual number. How about the 30-year war? And again, we're going back four, 500 years, 1618 to 1648. And it's looked at by atheists as, look, there's a war between Protestants and between Catholics. But historians tell us it was not about religion at all. But it was a political contest of power by the rising nation states on the continent of Europe. As a matter of fact, just to demonstrate that, Catholic France helped the Protestants in the war because it served their political interest. Now, they apply that to conflicts today and say they're not ethnic conflicts, as usually they're described, and correctly they are described, or political contests, but they're always blamed on religion, which is just absolutely not true. Christopher Hitchens, who is one of the most prominent atheists, tells a joke that actually undermines his own position. Here's the joke he tells, and it actually undermines what his position is, is that these are all religious wars. A man is walking down a street in Belfast when a gunman leaps out of a doorway, points a gun at him, and says, are you Protestant or Catholic? The guy responds, neither, I'm an atheist. The guy thinks for a moment, and the gunman says, are you Catholic atheist or Protestant atheist? Okay, uh, that joke actually undermines his position because what it's saying is it doesn't matter if you're Catholic or Protestant. What matters is what side of the political conflict uh, that you find yourself in. Now, here's my point that goes along with the binocular illustration. Let me give you another illustration from the realm of sports. My favorite basketball player, Kobe Bryant, I just uh, found a way to bring my favorite football player and my favorite basketball player into the sermon. Favorite basketball player. What if the only number I gave you about Kobe was the number 18, and told you the number 18 is the number of games Kobe has fouled out of in his entire career. In his entire career, he's fouled out of a game 18 times. And what if that's all I talked about, just over and over again? You begin to think, well, he was a lousy player. My goodness, he must have not have done his team much good if all he did, all he was doing was foul, 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 getting kicked out of games for it. What good is that to his team? But what if I began to give you dozens of different numbers along with that to put it into context? Here, here's a couple. How about the number 107? That's how many 40-point games Kobe has had. How about the number 31,700? That's how many points he has scored in his career. Okay, what if I began to give you dozens of those numbers, number of NBA championships and gold medal won and MVPs uh, that were won by him? What if I began to give the number after number, number of assists, number of rebounds, all these different other numbers? You would say, oh my goodness, he fouled out of a few games. Yeah, that was bad. But in the context of all the good that he did, Kobe was quite, quite a player. And that's exactly what happens when you begin to look at the whole scope fairly honestly of the history of followers of Christ. Now, this leads atheist writers to the third contemporary myth, which is things would be better if Christianity was eliminated from society and atheists were in charge. If you didn't have all these crazies reading a book from 2,000 years ago, how much better off we would be? Well, it's been tried over a 54-year period. It's been tried to have atheists in charge. It's been done, and we can look at the results. Um, Stalin, atheist leader of Russia, killed 20 million, not during warfare, but 20 million of his own people. These are mainly during times of peace, not mainly during times of war. Mao Zedong is, is accused of killing 70 million of his own people. Adolf Hitler, who was born Catholic, and so the atheists like to give him to us, 
but absolutely not. He was a, he was a, a worshiper of pagan gods. He was born Catholic, but he was a worshiper of pagan gods, very anti the church, saw Christians in the church as the main impediment to his rise of power. Uh, and he was a worshiper of the pagan gods. He was mainly influenced by social Darwinism, by Charles Darwin and social Darwinism and the survival of the fittest. That was the driving motivation within his life. Ten million. You put just three of them together. This is just three atheists in charge. A hundred million people in 54 years. We're not talking 19 witches. We're not talking, you know, 1,500, 2,000 people in the Inquisition. We're talking just from three of them, a hundred million in a 54-year period. Now, that doesn't even include the honorable mention or dishonorable mention list of Lenin in, in Russia and the numbers that he killed and Khrushchev in Russia and the atheist uh, leader that how many he killed and the atheist leader Brezhnev in Russia and the numbers that he killed. How about the atheist Paul Pot in Cambodia killed between one and a half and two million of his own people, about 20% of the population of Cambodia. One in five Cambodians were killed by their atheist leader. Enver Hoxha, which I have to admit, how many have ever heard of him before I just said it? Uh, You get the history award. He's the leader of Albania, the atheist leader of Albania that killed so many. Nicolae Ceausescu in uh, Romania. Uh, Fidel Castro uh, in Cuba. And King Jong Il, Kim Jong Il, uh, in North Korea, his son just put an American in prison just this morning. Uh, that was on the news. Let me stop with Korea for just a moment. Let me say that if you're a Korean War veteran, I want to honor you. They're often called the Forgotten Veterans. It's called the Silent Generation, the Korean War era. And can I just honor you because when you look back historically, what an amazing thing you did. In the same way that those European armies kept the overflow of Islam into Europe from the Middle East. In the same way, by stopping communism in North Korea and preventing it to going into South Korea, what an amazing accomplishment that was by that particular um, uh, generation of, of, of Americans. It's an amazing thing. When you consider what's happened over the last 60 years, we have a perfect social experiment that illustrates what I'm talking about here. You take the Korean Peninsula, okay? And we'll put the map up there, the Korean Peninsula. And what you do is like 60 years ago or so, you divide a line in it. And and they're the same people culturally. These are culturally the same. You put the north under the leadership of atheists. And you put the south under leadership of Christians. Christianity is the fastest growing in South Korea as any other country. Did you know that South Korea now sends more missionaries around the world than the United States does? We've been the leader for years, a much smaller country than ours. They have now passed us, South Korea has, in the number of missionaries they send around the world. So put this cake into the oven and have the northern half of the cake, the northern part of the cake, the half of the cake, be the yeast of atheism, and the southern half put the yeast of Christianity and let it bake for 60 years. Pull it out, and what have you got? You've got North Korea, which is probably the worst country in the, in the world to live in. You've got South Korea, which is one of the best. Here's an amazing picture. It's worth a thousand words. Um, here's a picture of the Korean Peninsula from space at night. Is that just illustrated right there? Now, the south, that's the prosperity of electricity as compared uh, to, the, to, to the north. But, you know, I think there's a spiritual picture there, isn't there, also? You can see the, the spiritual light in the south and, and the darkness of the north. And that just is an absolute example of what happens under the influence of the two 
of the two uh, philosophies, the two uh, movements, Christianity or atheism. Now, what they'll try to do, the new atheists, is they will mix together different religions, particularly Islam, the Old Testament part of the Bible, and the New Testament part of the Bible, even though the final word of God we believe to be the New Testament, the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. Watch how they mix them together. Here's Stephen Pinker, and here's what he wrote. He said, religions have given us stonings, witch burnings, crusades, inquisitions, jihads, fatwas, um, suicide bombers, and abortion clinic gunmen. Now, notice how they kind of mix it uh, all together there. And by the way, with regard to that last one, abortion clinic gunmen, boy, the way that is used as moral parody uh, between different things, you, you would think, uh, you know, how many, how many people have died as a result of abortion clinic violence? You would think, what, 7,000? How about 700? Seven. In all of American history, seven. Now, that one is too many. One is wrong. One is too many, as we're going to see in just a moment, okay? But you would think that it was thousands upon thousands. The binoculars are on it. Oh, my goodness. Look how many it is. Uh, and, and what they do is they mix and match these things. When you read the books, they just kind of mix and match uh, all the time. Now, a great defender of Christianity, and I never thought I'd be using him as an illustration, a positive illustration for my sermon, is Bill Maher. Let's put his picture up there. There he is. <laughs> Believe it or not, this week, Bill was on our side. I never thought I'd say those things. Now, don't get me wrong. Bill thinks we're morons, okay? So Bill Maher thinks, thinks we're crazy. He thinks we're crazy to follow a book from 2,000 years ago, and he will, he will, he will tell you that. Okay, but, oh my goodness, if you go online when you get home, look at the interview from this past week with him and Charlie Rose. Charlie Rose interviewing Bill Maher. And it's an incredible thing, because he just says, he, he thinks we're morons, but he thinks we're nice morons, is what he does, okay? He thinks we're good morons. And he just says, to, com- to give moral parity to Islamic Christianity, he just says it's stupid. It's just utterly untrue. And so it was kind of fun to have Bill on our side for a week. I, I, I thoroughly um, enjoyed that. Okay, so now, having said that, all right, uh, that leads us to the final myth, which is the Bible leads people to arrogance and violence. And even if one person has done something wrong in the name of Jesus, that still is, is a problem. We don't want our defense to be, well, at least we're better than the atheists. Okay, we, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. And, and, and here uh, we see that when people do these things, they do it in spite of what Jesus taught, not because of what Jesus taught. Now, I, I preached on the problem of Old Testament warfare back on June 13th, 2010. So when you go to our website this week to get this sermon from this, right next to it, you can go back in the archives and get it. But, but if you want to get it more conveniently, it'll be there on our website if you want to hear that message I did on the problem of Old Testament warfare. But remember, the final word is the New Testament. And we believe the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. So our final word of what we follow as Christians is the New Testament, not, not the Old Testament, and the New interprets the Old. And what you will find, and this is a supernatural thing, I find this another evidence for the truthfulness of God's Word. Not a shred in the New Testament supporting violence in the propagation and the promotion of Christianity. Not a shred. Now the reason I find that so supernatural, it was written during a very violent age. You would expect if this were just merely a human book, you would totally expect the violent culture in which it was written to seep into the pages of the New Testament. I mean, the Koran, which was written 600 years after, after the New Testament, 
is just steeped. Every page practically has something with regard to the promotion of violence in, in the name of Islam. And yet you find none of that in the New Testament, with one possible exception. I'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, how about that the Bible leads people to arrogance? Well, that is in spite of what Jesus' words would say. Matthew 7, do not judge or you too will be judged. From the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So it certainly doesn't come from Jesus. How about Matthew 5 verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's the message of of the New Testament. Now, there's one possible exception I said I'd show to you. It's in Luke 22, verse 38. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. And and actually, in in your, your study outline, for some reason, the last half of the verse got left off there. But here it is here up on the PowerPoint. Disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Now, if, you, if the verse stopped right there, if it stopped with verse 38, we'd have a little bit of a dilemma because there's two ways you can take that. You can either take that with Jesus saying, that's enough, two swords will do us. You be Jason Bourne, I'll be uh, um, you know, Chuck Norris. Uh, uh, my, my daughter, Rebecca, just got a t-shirt with the Chuck Norris on it. It says, Chuck Norris can kill two stones with one bird. And uh, you've, you've seen... <laughs> You've seen the list of all those, you know. So Jesus said, I will be Chuck Norris. You be Jason Bourne, Peter. Two swords, that's enough. Or you can take it, that's enough. Like you did to your kids driving to church this morning when they were arguing in the backseat. Hey, 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 that's enough, that's enough. Uh, Which way should we take it? Well, 11 verses later, Jesus clears up which way he means for us to take this. Very, very clear. 11 verses later, when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, They said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? As in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the enemies of Jesus came to take him to the cross. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. That's enough. You two in the back with swords, cutting your ears off. Kids, no. No more. No more of this. That's enough. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Matthew puts it this way. Jesus said, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And so when people do certain things, um, acts of violence, in, in the name of Christ, they do it in spite of what Christ clearly taught. Now, what I'm about to say is very politically incorrect. But this is contrary to Islam. Uh, where when people are people of peace, and I, I believe that the majority are, but when they do that, they do that in contrast to what their book teaches, not because of what their book teaches. And when people do violence in the name of Islam, when they behead people like ISIS is doing seemingly on a weekly basis now, they do that because of what their book says, not in spite of what their book says. Do You see, it's diametrically opposite of what we find in the New Testament. They are doing it by following passages like, O Prophet Muhammad, urge the believers, Muslims, to fight. Jihad, holy fighting, and Allah's cause is ordained for you. 
Fight against those who believe not in Allah. Verily, Allah loves those who fight in his cause. Kill the idolaters wherever you find them and capture them and besiege them and lie in wait for them in each and every ambush. So take not Oelia, protectors or friends from them till they emigrate in the way of Allah to Muhammad. But if they turn back from Islam, take hold of them and kill them wherever you find them. Now, <laughs> I was just going to end the sermon right there. Go thou and do likewise. You know, that, 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 you know this, is, this is why it's helpful to look over it one more time on Saturday and say, don't want to end there, Glenn. You know, yeah, God bless you. Have a great day. Uh, so instead, uh, let's, let's end with our uh, theme verse, 1 Peter 3, verse uh, 15. Let's put it up there. I'll read it out loud, and then I'm going to have you read it out loud. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So let's read this out loud together. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Let's stand for our closing benediction. Just a reminder that our prayer room is open and our prayer team, our prayer partners are right through that door, right there. If there's anything you'd like prayer for, a physical need, emotional, financial, spiritual, relational, any need, they would just love to pray for you. We've seen miracles come out of that room in the months uh, past or, or weeks or, or years, and they would just love to pray for you. Uh, for our benediction, I want to read 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 16 and 17. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. And all God's family said, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.